So we're going through a series of 10 different studies on the doctrine of Christ. In our first study, we talked about the doctrine of the Bible. Um, Last week, in our second study, we talked about the doctrine of God and the Holy Trinity. And tonight, we're going to be talking talking about the doctrine of Christ. So um, we had said that we're going to try and get... um, my notes um, up there, of course, the, the audio version and video version is going up, but I get my uh, notes up there, and they're up there now. So um, when you uh, go to check, if you go to our website, cclberg.com, if you look across the top banner, you're going to see, I think it's the second to last drop-down menu, it's going to say Doctrine or Doctrine Series, and if you click on that, there's a place where you can um, access these notes. So we said we'd do that, we got it. But tonight we're going to talk about the doctrine of Christ. And no theology could ever be considered complete without a thorough consideration of Christ. Jesus stands as the foundation of the church, the provider of salvation, and the hope of all believers. And so it's not an understatement that a wrong view of Christ can have eternal consequences. If somebody has a wrong view of Christ... Um, there are certain aspects of who he is and what he's done that could lead to um, a Christless eternity. And throughout the history of the church, there have been important councils. We'll refer to some of them tonight. That would be by councils, we mean group of um, leaders of the church getting together to discuss and make decisions about certain doctrines. Uh, the, the works of godly men and countless debates that have allowed us to arrive at a, a, a clear and biblical understanding of who Christ the Lord is. And we are able to stand on their shoulders. We're able to glean from what they have done and the labors that they have gone through. And so we have the privilege to be able to do that. So we're going to have main, eight main points. If we get through it all, we're going to have eight main points with several subpoints. Um, but as we talk about the doctrine of Christ, we're going to talk about his pre-incarnate existence. We're going to talk about the incarnation. We're going to talk about his offices. We're going to talk about his sinless nature. And of course, his death, burial, and resurrection. And finally, his ascension. And so that is where we aim to go this evening. Let's begin with discussing the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, most believers are going to be really familiar with the, the, the ministry of Jesus. Maybe even his birth, um, his maybe seen down at the temple, um, his baptism, and then, of course, what the Gospels give us. Mo- we have the most amount of information um, of his life found in those four Gospels. So it's not surprising that we would know that. But one area that should not be overlooked is the pre-incarnate Christ. That is, the pre-existence of Christ, his eternal nature, and his past works. So we want to think about that. And when we don't understand those theological aspects of, the, of his life, I think it can end up opening the opportunity to um, not understand who he claims to be concerning his nature. We're going to see an example of that from the early church. We're failing to understand um, the pre-incarnate Christ. They ended up at a theological error, a significant one, one of the most significant, and one that is still being carried out to this very day, actually. So, talking about the pre-incarnate Christ, we first want to discuss the pre-existence of Christ. And this is something that is important, because what was happening with the Lord before Bethlehem? What was happening with the Lord? Was Jesus around more specifically, was the Christ around before Bethlehem? The answer is yes. He pre-existed. John 3.13 says, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. So Jesus had an existence in heaven before he came down. John 17.5 says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself. Look at this. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. A clear indication that um, Christ existed before Jesus' birth there in Bethlehem. Another super clear teaching found on this is found in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. And here we find this 
being said by John. In the beginning was the word. The word in Greek for word is logos. So in the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God or the word was with God. And the word was God. Again, he says it again. Uh, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So this reference to the Word is a reference to Jesus Christ. And so we find a lot of clear statements about who he is, but for our purposes right here, what we're finding is that Jesus pre-existed, and he pre-existed in the beginning with God before all of creation. Now down through the ages, as I mentioned, there have been heretical groups that have made a faulty distinction Listen closely here. A faulty distinction between the pre-existence of Christ and his eternal nature. So you can say that Christ pre-existed before Bethlehem, and they have then said, but it doesn't make him eternal. Well, when we speak of his pre-existence, we are speaking of his eternal nature. And it was John Arius who insisted, and he was... condemned at the Council of 325, the Council of Nicaea. But John Arius insisted that if Christ was the only begotten, he must have had a beginning. So while he would agree that Christ pre-existed, he would not agree that he was eternal. So Arianism, coming from his last name, John Arius, uh, was a heresy that was condemned at the Council of Nicaea, Nicaea in 325 A.D., and they claim that although Jesus pre-existed, he was not, or and Arius did, he was not an eternal being or fully divine. And failing to learn from history and that heresy, um, the Jehovah Witnesses have, have a very similar doctrine to this Arian heresy. They claim that Jesus pre-existed as Michael the angel, but deny the eternality of Christ. In other words, he's not eternal. And him being eternal is what really affirms his deity, right? So you could argue that he was pre-existent, and he was. But if you don't understand that he was eternal, then you can come up with an error like uh, John Arias. So it's important that we not only talk about the pre-existence of Christ, but that we talk about his eternal nature, the eternality of Christ. And here's a quote. The eternality of Christ goes one step beyond Christ's pre-existence. Noting that not only did Christ exist before the incarnation, but he has eternally existed and is thus divine. So that's the important piece, is that when we talk about the pre-incarnate Christ, yes, he pre-existed, but that he is eternal. Which every one of you should be asking at this point is, do you have a verse for that? And the answer is, yes, we do. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, uh, from of old, from everlasting. So again, you see there's eternal picture. Uh, Colossians 1, 17 and 18. In the New Testament, Paul speaks of Christ's eternal nature. And he says, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. So if you look in these three, uh, two verses, you'll see a few uh, words, is, okay? He is. And then in verse 18, and he is. And then a little further on in verse 18, who is. And what is happening here is a present tense verb is being used to speak of his, continue, his eternal nature. So not just like at a point in time, but he has been and is continuing to be. And, and so this is something that you can see clearly in Colossians. He is before all things. Um, there's nothing that's around Without him. So we must be careful when affirming the pre existence of Christ to likewise affirm his eternality, which is to affirm or confirm his deity. So understand that. Make sure you keep these pieces and these ideas together. Oh, one other passage um, John 8 58. In John 8 58, 
Um, Jesus, in the argument, of course, as he often was with the leaders and the scribes, um, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. That is a present tense verb again. I am, not I was or I will be. So Jesus here does not merely claim to have pre-existence. Otherwise, he could have said, before Abraham, I was. That would be pre-existence, right? So he could have easily said, just spoke of his pre-existence, but he goes beyond that and he says, I am, which is to speak of his deity. And that was um, the name that God used to reveal himself to Abraham, uh, um, to, to um, the children of Israel. And he's saying, listen, I was around before Abraham, not was, but I am. So they understood him to be speaking of his eternal nature. So he's pre-incarnate. Um, he is uh, he pre-existed. He's eternal. And what is it that he did? What is this pre-incarnate one doing before being born in Bethlehem? We've already read a few of these verses, but we'll, we'll make a, a, the point and go back into some of these verses. And, and one thing that we see is that he was doing the work of a creator. Uh, John, excuse me, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist, or everything is held together. So before uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the pre-incarnate Christ, the Logos, he was creating this world and that is something that we find and who is who has the ability to create other than God himself so another emphasis of his deity and um, one author Douglas Moo he comes to this conclusion about this passage he says Christ stands at the beginning of the universe as the one through who it came into being and he stands at its end as the goal of the universe. So Colossians 1, 15 through 17 isn't just telling us that he created everything, but everything was created what? For him. And he is the purpose. He is the one that is over all of creation. And, um, and he is holding it all together. Which brings us to our second point. Not only is he the creator, but... In the, you know, before being born in Bethlehem, but he is also the one that is holding this whole world together. Verse 17, we just looked at it. He is before all things, and all things um, are consist in him or are held together. Um, he's the one that is keeping this planet and all of its work functioning. Uh, this is something that is echoed in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But it's in the middle of that verse I want you to see that he is upholding all things by the word of his power. All things in him consist. All things are held by him, together by him by the word of his power. How does this universe stay together? What's holding it together it is the, the Christ. It is Jesus. He was doing that before he was born. He is still doing it at this very moment. One of the other activities that we see uh, the, the Christ doing before being born in Bethlehem, and we even talked about this a little bit on uh, our past Sunday morning study in Exodus, and that he was making Old Testament appearances. Now, it was proper to just proper to say that you wouldn't say that Jesus was making appearances because this is how we know him in his humanity, right? Um, so we would say that there was these pre-visitations um, of Christ before um, Bethlehem. And often we see him coming as an angel of the Lord. Now the word angel in both Greek and the Hebrew language, does anybody remember from um, Sunday morning, what does it mean? Angel means what? Messenger. It means messenger. So um, 
You, you could be sent as a messenger by the Apostle Paul. Um, you're probably not going to be translated as angel, but in the Greek it would be the word um, that is the same. So but it would probably be, you know, it was a messenger. So it could be a person. It could be an angelic being like Michael or Gabriel. They were angelic beings and they were sent on errands with messages by the Lord. Of course, you can think of Mary and Gabriel coming to her. And the, the, an angelic being came with a message, a very important message. Um, so this is it. But the third way this idea of messenger can be used, definition number three, is that um, the pre-incarnate Christ can come. And he can show up as an angel of the Lord. And so this is something that um, I, I always love to take the opportunity to slow down and look at and consider. And um, I believe that's what we found in our text in Exodus where uh, the Lord said, I'm going to send an angel. You must obey him. And so how do you know when you read about an angel in the Old Testament that it is referring to um, a, the pre-incarnate Christ versus just an angelic being? Well, the context. you got to read what's going on. Is that angel of the Lord being worshipped and receiving it? then it's probably a pretty good indication that that is a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ. Are there attributes that are assigned to that um, appearance that could only apply to um, God? And if, if you find that, then you, you can, again, rest assured this is something that is more than just an angelic being. So as you read through, there are quite a few, there are quite a few examples. For one, um, you can consider Genesis 32.30. And when Jacob encountered this experience, a theophany, um, Old Testament appearance, another word for it, of God, um, he says, I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Genesis 32, 30. So I'm not sure that in that passage it ever refers to as an angel of the Lord, but this person that he wrestled with, he tells us he saw God face to face. Um, Genesis 16, 13, you can find others that had encounters, Hagar, and refer to this as seeing the Lord. So there are those appearances that happen in the Old Testament that they can't be a man and they can't be an angel because they're referred to as being God or attributes that are only of God are assigned to them or they receive worship. So these are some of the ways in which you can see this. But Although we have the birth, the incarnation of Jesus in Bethlehem, prior to that, there was much activity going on on the part of Christ. So if your concept has been you had the Father kind of in the Old Testament and you had the Spirit, but Jesus really doesn't do much until he comes on the scene, oh no, he's creating all things for himself and he's holding the whole world together and he's making appearances, He is meeting with people. So you can have... Um, uh, you can quite fill up the pages of your, your notebook on the things that the Lord did. But let's move from the pre-incarnate Christ to the incarnate Christ, or the incarnation of Christ. And here is a well-documented event which uh, speaks of how the eternal Christ took on human flesh, was born of the Virgin Mary. And so one author says, the affirmation that God, in one of the modes of his existence as Trinity, and without any ceasing to be the one God, has revealed himself to humanity for its salvation by becoming human. And the key phrase in here is, without ceasing to be one God. So the Trinity did not go on pause when Jesus was born there in Bethlehem. The eternal God took on human flesh. This is an amazing teaching of Scripture. The word incarnation means to take flesh, and it's a term that's, uh, that's based upon the Latin version of John 1.14. And I'll read, you got the verse there. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's, that's where we get the word incarnation from. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So that's where we find the word incarnation coming from the Latin version of John 1.14, which in ours is just translated flesh. But taking on human flesh, the incarnation. 
So how did that happen? How did the eternal God end up taking on human flesh? What was the means of that incarnation? And you know the answer. The means of the incarnation is the virgin birth. Through Mary, approximately 650 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah announced that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We'll come to that again in just a moment. When Mary was informed she was to be with Christ, she said, how could this be? Why does she ask that question? Because she is a virgin. How how could I possibly be pregnant? Now, all right, Gabriel, I recognize this is quite a moment, quite a visitation I'm having, so I'm not doubting you, but I just don't understand how this could be. And the response is found in Luke 1.35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called the Son of God. The Son of God. Quite a title. A title that the Pharisees on one occasion, when they hear this, they consider it blasphemy and they want to see him be put to death. So, the Son of God. um, The cults may muddy the meaning of the phrase the Son of God, but Scripture doesn't. This is a clear indication of his deity. And so, you're going to have the Son of God. He's going to be the Holy One, the Son of God. And you're going to have this child because... The Lord is going to perform a miracle and he is going to overshadow you and you will become with child. So what are the purposes of the incarnation? And I think I've got three reasons under here. So what are the purposes of the incarnation? Um, first, the incarnation is, speaks of that early and first promise in Genesis 3.15 that it had been fulfilled. Genesis 3.15, this is Adam and Eve, okay? They have sinned in the garden. And Genesis 3.15 is the first prophecy of the coming of Jesus. And we read, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So here's an early promise. There's not a lot of information there. But we know what this is. Mary is going to carry the capital seed, the, the, the Son of God in her womb and give birth. And he eventually will grow up and he will die on the cross and he will defeat the curse of sin and the deception that Satan um, brought into this world. So this is one way in which we see the, the incarnation fulfilling a purpose. It is to um, fulfill that first promise of, that the seed of the woman would... would um, Uh, destroy Satan. The second reason, and here's where our minds really are going to be challenged, was to unite both the divine and the human into one person. This is kind of like the teaching of the Trinity. You can understand divinity and you can understand humanity. Each of those on their own are easy concepts to consider. Where our minds begin to fry a little bit is how can one person Be fully God and fully man. And I think this is where I would say again, great is the mystery of godliness. As we spoke of the Trinity. This is something that is in the mind of God and he fully understands and he fully knows. But that's what we're talking about with the incarnation. It's not just baby Jesus coming. It's it's the pre-incarnate Christ coming and taking on human flesh. And a person that was to be born to a virgin. Charles Ryrie states, The Savior must be human in order to be able to die. But the death of an ordinary man would not pay for sin eternally. So the Savior must also be God. We must have a God-man Savior. So, when we be, well, does it really have to be fully human? Yes, he does. He does. Because man has to pay um, uh, the penalty for sin. 
Um, but he must be fully God because all of mankind has sinned. So there has to be a special, unique uh, representation to atone for sins. And God's answer was to have the second person of the eternal Godhead to come and to be born of a virgin and take on human flesh. So this is the second purpose, is to unite the divine and human in one, perp- one person. Um, and the third reason was that we might have a model. Now that's a lot easier for us to wrap our minds around. Is that we would know how to walk, that we would know how to live our life. And so the Father has given us a perfect example in Jesus Christ of how we should conduct ourselves. So there's three purposes for the incarnation. Um, to see the, uh, the proto-evangelium, that is Genesis 3.15, that a seed would come and destroy um, Satan, that that might be fulfilled. That there might be the uniting of the divine and the human. That, thirdly, we might have an example. But let's talk a little bit about the full deity of Christ incarnate. So Jesus was fully divine, and he in no way had his deity diminished when he was born to Mary. Colossians 1.19 says, For it pleased the Father that in him, that is in Jesus, that all the what? Fullness should dwell. All the fullness of the Godhead. This is the Lord's desire, and that is what happened. So we need to have this understanding because most false teachings about Jesus is going to happen somewhere in this territory is that he was not fully God or he was not fully man but that's not what we find in the Bible Matthew 1 23 behold the virgin shall be a child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which is translated what God with us And so that's what we have in the birth of Jesus. We have God with us. This is truly amazing. I mean, it's it's miraculous that this can take place. Scripture is clear in declaring that Jesus was God. And we'll look at this in three places. So some would say, well, when he became, when he was born, he laid aside some deity. Well, Hebrews 1.8 would disagree. So Hebrews 1.8 says, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God. Who's speaking? The Father. To the Father, the Father says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. He doesn't sound like anything less than fully God. A second statement comes from his disciple. So you have God who speaks of his deity. Then you have his disciple that's going to speak of his deity. And this is uh, John 20, verses 27 through 29. And this is when Thomas says, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my fingers in the holes in his body. And the Lord appears. And he says, here you go, Thomas. And Thomas's response in uh, John 20, verse 28, the second half of that verse says, he responds and says, my Lord and what? My God. Now, some will say, oh, that way he was just making an exclamation. You mean he was taking the name of the Lord in vain? When he just saw Jesus risen from the dead, and he sees him, and the first thing that he knows to say is to take the name of the Lord in vain? I don't think so. Not only that, Jesus goes on to say, a lot of other people are going to believe this too, Thomas. So this, he's, his exclamation is, is affirmed, not corrected. A third example of Jesus' deity, full deity, is is found in the understanding of the enemies of the Lord. Now, they don't actually believe he's divine, but they believe that he's claiming to be divine. So, one of these passages is in John chapter 5. And he's there in a conflict with the religious leaders. And in verse 17... um, We read, my father has been working until now, and I've been working. So Jesus makes this statement, just speaking of the oneness between him and the father. The father's been working, and I've been working. In verse 18, we read, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself what? So God the father calls Jesus God. Thomas, the disciple, seeing the resurrection, calls Jesus God. 
And now the enemies understand when Jesus is speaking about the oneness he shares with the Father that he's claiming to be equal with God. So this is not like in some isolated passage. All throughout Scripture, um, we understand that the incarnate Christ was fully and completely divine. He lacked no divinity. His divinity, you often will see this phrase, was not diminished. But he also had perfect humanity. So it wasn't just that he was full of deity, but he was also perfect in his humanity. This is also another super important teaching. That God sent his son and he was born of the virgin and was a fully, was fully human. While the deity of Christ is quickly identified, I think at times we begin to set aside the importance of his humanity. But if we just put it in simple terms, Jesus needed to be human if he was going to represent fallen humanity on the cross. He was going to be the head that was going to take the sin of the world upon him. Man had sinned. The wages of sin is death. There needed to be somebody to represent mankind. And that was going to be Jesus. As evidence of Christ's humanity, um, again, three affirmations are, we can make of Christ that he was a man. First, he was born to a human family. I mean, you often skip it, but at the beginning of the Gospels, um, you're going to find in two of them that they go through a genealogy. And you're like, ah, genealogy, let's just skip to that. Okay, you can skip it. There's no penalty points for that. But just understand this. The Holy Spirit is going out of his way to say he was born of a human family. He has a lineage in this earth that goes through Mary. Second, he had a normal human body. Um, Luke chapter 2 verses, uh, verse 52 tells us that he grew in a manner that was common to all humanity. I mean, he didn't have like this special you know, um, experience. He grew. As a child, just as your children have grown. And lastly, he functioned within the norms of humanity. So once he is full grown, he experienced all the things that a normal human being would experience. Like hunger, Matthew 4.2. Like sorrow, John chapter 11, verse 35. Displeasure in John 2.15. And even compassion in Mark 8.32. Very human. He was part of a family. He developed as a man and had the normal functions of a human. Of course, even as he died upon the cross, he would have felt pain just like anyone else. Now, what is this called of the deity of Christ and the humanity of the Lord coming together in one person? And it has a strange name. It's called the hypostatic union of Christ. The hypostatic union of Christ. It comes from, hypostatic comes from the Greek word hypostasis, which means uh, subsistence or nature kind of a thought there. And so we transliterate it, and hypostasis becomes a hypostatic union. And so the idea is the union of the two natures, the divine and the human, into this one person. And so here's the quote. It says, this, this phrase simply means the union of Christ's human and divine natures in one being. Uh, being. This comes from Wayne Grudem. So just, it's pretty simple. Hypostatic union seems strange, but it's just all it's saying is they have come together in one being, not two, not 60 40, okay? Fully God, fully man. And this becomes the. Uh, the, the clear conclusion of the, the councils down through the church ages. Uh, one council concluded, without change, without division, without separation. That's how they explained the two natures coming together. Without change, um, that's the Chalcedonian Creed, 451. Without change, without division, without separation. So when you want to begin to read the Bible, well, is this his human part or his divine part? Don't do that. Just say, Lord, your ways are higher than my ways. You know, great is the mystery of godliness. 
But I do want to talk, and I, we could spend a lot of time on this, but Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. In this, Paul's teaching the Philippians that they need to look out for the interest of others. They need to esteem the needs of other people above their very own. And he gives an example, a powerful example of how Jesus Christ did this. And how he humbled himself and he took on human form. And we read, like in the New King James, you're going to find it say, and he emptied himself. That word for empty in the Greek language is kenosis, like K-E-N-O-S-I-S, kenosis. And around this becomes a whole terrible theology called kenotic theology. And it comes on the scene out of some scholars, some theologians in Germany in 1860. So you don't find any canonic theology teachings prior to 1860. And what they claim is that when we read that Jesus emptied himself, they said, well, what part did they empty? And so they concluded that he emptied aspects of his divine nature. And then they argue all about what aspects of his divine nature. That is a terrible teaching. I want you just to think this through on a really simple level. If Paul is saying, I want you guys to give your life away, and I want you to serve one another and put other people's interests above your own. And oh, by the way, let me give you an example. Jesus did this for us. He emptied himself. Emptied himself of what? Of, of uh, a pride or not a pride, but like a, of, of anything that would keep him from coming and humbling himself. He emptied himself of his reputation and took on humanity. We're like, well, what's wrong with humanity? Well, compared to divinity, there's a huge difference. One is created and the other is not as creator. So there, this idea that he's saying is you should be like them. Don't have such a high opinion of yourself that you would be unwilling to serve in some way. You need to be like Jesus who emptied himself. And he came in a humble manner and he served. So if it is true, and it's not, that Jesus emptied certain aspects of his divine nature... Let's get back to the story. You Philippians, you need to love one another. No, oh, by the way, Jesus emptied himself of some of his nature. So he needs to be your example. So let me ask you then, what part of your human nature can you empty? Because if, if Jesus emptied something of his nature, then we must empty something of our nature. So let me ask you, can you jettison an aspect of your humanity right now? We're like, well, what does it even mean to be human? You know, so we, we have a hard time even figuring out ourselves. No, you can't jettison any part of your humanity. So, and what we're finding is what, what Jesus did, he humbled himself. They need to humble themselves. So when you hear this idea of kenosis, understand that's referring to the fact Jesus humbled himself and didn't hold on to his um, high-standing of um, being divine and being unwilling to come and be a servant. So we should be servants. So this is the idea behind the, the emptying process, self-emptying. It is not of his divine attributes. Moving on into another aspect um, is the offices of Christ. And by offices, we mean he was a prophet, he was a priest, and he was a king. We see each of these having an important place in the Old Testament. You can think about the many prophets. You can think about the many priests, Aaron. You could think about the kings of Israel. But Jesus came and he was a prophet and he was a priest and he was a king. He was fulfilling all three of these. Now prophets are the mouthpiece of God. They declare the word of God to the people. Um, and we find this in Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 1. Moses said that there would be a prophet that would be raised up like unto himself. And then in Acts chapter 3, verse 22 through 24, you find a quoting of that Deuteronomy passage and lets us know that Jesus is that prophet that was raised up. So Jesus is a prophet. He speaks um, as the mouthpiece of God to the people of God. But he's also a priest. A priest served as a mediator to offer sacrifices and offerings to God on behalf of the people. 
And in the book of Hebrews, we find that Jesus was a priest according to the order, does anybody know? Melchizedek, all right. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20. So he's a prophet that was announced by Moses that would come. He is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And a king in the Old Testament, he ruled over the nation on behalf of the Lord. And so Jesus is our king. Um, David was given this promise that there would always be one to sit on his throne. And then in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33, Gabriel speaks to Mary and says, Your child is going to sit on the throne of his father, David. So Jesus came and he was a prophet, he is a priest, and he is a king. Um, A.H. Strong States, and I love this quote. It says, The prophet, the priest, and the king of the Old Testament were detached. In other words, they weren't connected, but designed prefigurations of him who should combine all these various activities in himself and should furnish the ideal reality of which they were imperfect symbols. So the Old Testament had imperfect symbols, but Jesus becomes the ideal reality. They were detached, meaning the prophet wasn't the priest, who wasn't the king. They all had their own role. But Jesus assumes all three of these prominent Old Testament roles. Quickly, and we could spend much time on this, Jesus was sinless. He's the, the sinlessness of Christ. He lived a perfect life. With regard to Christ's deity, well, he's divine. He's holy. As a man, Jesus was fully compliant with the law of Moses. Jesus was not just without sin in regard to acquired defect, in other words, his birth. But he also was without sin in regard to... um, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. Acquired defect in the way he lived his life, but inherited defect, what he received. So he was divine, but then as he lived out his life on planet Earth, he did not ever acquire sin. He did not sin. And you can go through the trial of Jesus to see this. Everybody's saying Jesus is innocent. Even the leaders of Israel, in an interesting way, kind of in an inside-out way, Declare the innocence of Jesus by having to hire people to lie against him to bring a charge against him. If they had something, just say it. But they didn't have that. So even at the most critical moment for the enemies of Christ, they could bring no credible charge, so they had to pay somebody off to do this and to uh, try and frame him. So he was sinless. But the three things that are so significant about his life is the crucifixion, the resurrection, and his ascension. So we must think about these things. These are three important events of his life. So Christ's crucifixion, first of all. Jesus declared that in Matthew 20, verse 28, I'll read it to you. It says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus said, my whole purpose in coming is to be a ransom, is to give my life, to to die on the cross. The reality is that Jesus was born to die. He He had to receive a human body, that that human body couldn't have been just the Christ that came. No, because what are you going to nail to the cross? Where are you going to pour out the wrath of God against the sin of mankind. There needed to be that human aspect of the nature of the Lord. In Matthew 1.21 we read, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Mary and every other Jew knew there was no other way to have sins cleansed other than sacrificing an animal. This is clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So even in his birth announcement, there's an announcement of his death. His death upon the cross for man's sin is known as the substitutionary sacrifice for sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
And this, this, this substitutionary element of Christ's ministry was clearly announced in Isaiah chapter 53. Read Isaiah 53 on your own and look and see how the, he was bruised for our iniquities. He is the one that was substituted. He took our sin and he was crucified there for us. So important. Christ's resurrection. This is where many people have a hard time with uh, the Christian faith. But it's here at the Christ, uh, Christ's resurrection that the doctrine of Christianity stands or falls. And I'll show you what I mean by that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 through 19, and you can just turn, turn there. And you can see Paul talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And some you know, are saying, well, did he rise? Did he not rise? And he comes to this conclusion in verse 17. He says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Jesus had to rise from the dead. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then he was not a sufficient sacrifice for your sins. In other words, your sin being transferred to Jesus on the cross, the Father looked at it and said, oh, I don't think so. That is not going to be sufficient. And Jesus would have just died as any other man. But that he rose from the dead tells us that that sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, your faith is futile. Your faith is empty. I tell this story often. And it's, um, I was doing a wedding somewhere and it wasn't at a, at a church that I was familiar with. And so I walked in, was introduced, and I spoke to um, this person that was helping me out. And they, they said, well, do you, you know, tell me a little bit about your church. And so I began to ask questions. She goes, are you a church that believes that Jesus actually rose from the dead? I'm like, oh, yeah, we're one of those. I go, we definitely believe that. And, and I said, how about you? I mean, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? She goes, well, we believe that if it's important to you, that it's important. And I said, so you don't believe, then some here would not believe the importance of believing that Jesus rose from the dead. She goes, yeah, we wouldn't say that that is something that you had to do. And I said, okay. I said, do you believe you're going to have eternal life? And she goes, well, of course. I said, based on what? And um, it was a friendly conversation. She goes, oh, I see what you're doing. You're trying to trick me. I said, I'm not trying to trick you. I'm just saying, if you think you're going to rise from the dead, but you don't think Jesus rose from the dead, what is your basis for saying you're going to rise from the dead? And she goes, I'm not going to be a sermon illustration, am I? And I'm like, I won't tell you how I answered that. But there she is. She's, I'm sure she is not even around anymore and I pray that she put her faith and trust in the Lord and is in the presence of the Lord but yeah we believe in the absolute necessity of the resurrection well people can't rise from the dead exactly that is exactly the point you want to know for certain that you have the right Messiah the right Christ Christ and Messiah interchangeable right Christ being uh, from the Greek Messiah coming from the Hebrew same same word same same description. You want to know how you can make certain beyond any shadow of a doubt that you have belief in the right Messiah? Did he rise from the dead? Because if who you're believing and trusting in did not rise from the dead, then he is not the one that was the anointed one of the Lord, the one that was sent by the Lord. And we would still be in our sins if he did not rise. When Jesus was challenged about his authority, he declared that after being dead for three days, he would rise from the dead, thus giving evidence that he was truly the Son of God. You can reference John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. So if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then he is not the Son of God. But indeed, he did rise. Many have rejected the idea that Christ rose because... They hold a materialistic philosophy that says the supernatural is not possible. I do not believe that it's possible, people will say. So it doesn't matter what evidence you would possibly give people like that. They've already come to a conclusion, a presupposition, you know, that says it can't happen. But here are six helpful points that point to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Number one. 
The tomb was empty. Number two, the shape of the burial cloths. So if you look in John 20, verse 28, you'll see that they weren't a crumpled mess, but it's as if a body just passed through them. Verse 3, eyewitness sightings of Jesus after his resurrection. Of course, the disciples. But at one point in time, 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 saw him. Number four, the disciples have transformed lives. How do you explain the transformation they went through? Five, the keeping of Sunday worship services. Why do we worship on Sunday? Because it's the Lord's Day. We believe it's the day he rose from the dead. A couple of references to you. And even the existence of the church. How does that even get started if he's still dead? By people that would know better. And so those are six points for consideration. Not to say that they're only ones, but those are six that come from um, Paul Enns in his book, The uh, Moody Handbook of Theology, which is a handbook, by the way, I highly recommend um, Moody Handbook of Theology by Paul Enns. So that's just a little bit about Christ's resurrection. These are, um, um, you know, he has been crucified. He's risen from the dead. And then our last point of over the, the, incarnate, the incarnation of Christ and what he did was he ascended. Um, so it's the last thing we see Jesus doing on earth is ascending. Mark 16, 19 says, So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So we see that ascension. Of course, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Here's another um, statement of his ascension. But not only a statement of his ascension, but a statement that he's going to come back again in the same way. We read verse 9, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? To which I would have said, Did you see what just happened? <laughs> Did you? I mean, why are you doing this? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back. He's coming back. And this is, of course, leads us into an understanding of a second coming. But we'll get, when we do the doctrine of last things, we'll talk more about that. But if you want to have fun tonight and read about him coming back, it's Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. You could read about the second coming of Christ. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And you know, I, uh, if I can just, I got my notes a little bit out of order. If I could just give you one more reference um, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's Psalm 1610. And here the New Testament writers are quoting from the Old Testament prophecies of the resurrection of Jesus. So Psalm 1610 says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes this passage to point to the fact that the Old Testament scriptures said that Jesus would rise from the dead. So I kind of got that out of order a little bit. Sorry about that. But Christ's ascension, he has gone up into heaven and one day he will come back. So we talked a little bit and we're on our, moving into our last point here. We talked about what was the Christ or the Messiah doing before he was born in Bethlehem. Now let's just quickly close with answering the question, what is the post-ascension ministries of Christ? What has Jesus been doing since he went back to heaven? Oh, and by the way, about this hypostatic union, the, the, the coming together of the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ, that is for all time. I didn't mention that. But this is not something that when he got back into heaven, that fusion broke. And I don't have time to go into the scriptures for that, but you can find them pretty easily. Um, a good place to look is maybe even in the book of Revelation. You'll find quite a few references. So Jesus to this day, he is still fully God and fully man. 
But having fulfilled the purpose of coming to be a ransom for many, Jesus went back to the Father. And we already read this verse, but I'll read it again in this context. Hebrews 1.3, Who being in the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So He is at the right hand of the majesty on high. What is he doing? Well, he has sent the Holy Spirit, right? Acts chapter 2, we see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus baptizing his church in the power of the Spirit. This is something that he is still doing to this day. Um, we also see in Matthew 16, 18, that Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail. So Jesus is baptizing the church. Jesus is building his church. Um, Ephesians 5, 29 and 30, we see that Jesus is nourishing his church, helping her grow. Ephesians 4, 8 through 13, um, tells us that he's giving gifted people to the church. And Romans 8, 34, we find that Jesus is interceding for his church. So again, that list would be that he is building his church, he is nourishing his church, he is gifting his church, he is interceding for his church. And we as a church are waiting for that second coming of Jesus Christ. Well, I say as the church, I believe the pre-tribulation rapture. And then he will come and he will set up his kingdom. And um, that's something that we'll talk more about. But the Lord has not stopped laboring on your behalf. And you know, as he is there in heaven interceding on your behalf, he gets what it's like to be you because he's fully human. Now, without sin, but he gets it. Um, does this mean we get a pass on having a bad attitude and sinning and losing our time? No, no, no. You don't, you don't get a pass. You're called to be holy. But Jesus understands it. Jesus understands what it's like to be in this tent he, he did not sin. I'm going to be very clear about that. But when you are feeling overwhelmed, when you are feeling betrayed, when you feel temptation, he felt temptation. He gets it. And so as you call out to him, you can have a confidence that he's not sitting there going, I have no idea what's wrong with you. He's like, I get it. I understand it. And, and this, again, not excusing any of our actions, but it ought to make us just feel so comfortable in coming to Him because He can sympathize with your weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be overwhelmed. You know, Jesus was so overwhelmed that He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. He was vexed unto death, he said. I think a lot of us have probably felt some anxious moments in our life, but he was vexed unto death. I mean, he was, felt like the cross before him as he was in the garden was something that was going to almost just take his life before he, <laughs> he had ever been whipped once. And he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Speaking of the intense anxiety that he was going through as he contemplated taking on the sin of the world there on the cross. Go to Jesus. He is still working. He's wanting to nourish you. He's wanting to build his church. He's interceding for you. He perfectly knows how to intercede for you. And so have a confidence of the Lord. So we've considered the pre-incarnate life of Christ. We've seen that he is the God-man. We've seen him as the prophet, the priest, and the king. That he has a sinless nature and that he atoned for our sins. He could atone for our sins. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was a central aspect of who or what he came to do, was to be a ransom for many. And he's ascended back to heaven, and one day will come back. We are waiting for his return. And um, hopefully what we can find is that we have a perfect Savior. Hopefully you see this. You've got a perfect Savior in Jesus. I would love to take some time, and I don't have the time to do it. But I, would, I, I encourage you to do a study on the Kinsman Redeemer. Has anybody ever done a study on the Kinsman Redeemer? If you'll go onto our website, and if you go under Through, um, through the Bible, 
you'll find one message in the book of Ruth. So we did a whole study on just the book of Ruth in one night. If you go into through the Bible, the book of Ruth, and you'll find out um, more about how Jesus needed to come and needed to take on human flesh, that he might be a kinsman redeemer. We talked a little bit about this this past Sunday, that if you sold yourself into slavery, that somebody that was near of kin to you, that they could come and they could pay the price to get you out of slavery. Jesus had to take on human flesh that he might be a kinsman redeemer to buy us out of slavery. It's a beautiful picture in the book of Ruth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that we can know and understand of you. And Lord, I just pray, I know this was a lot of information, but I just pray this summary approach to the doctrine and what we believe and why we believe it would have a profound impact in just establishing us. So many questions flying around about is historic Christianity really trustworthy. I pray, Lord, that as we go through the scriptures and we see what you have to say, that our faith would be firmly established and that we would contend for this faith that has once and for all been delivered to us, the saints. If you're here this evening and you're feeling like nobody is looking out for you, understand that Jesus is looking out for you. He sympathizes He knows what it's like. I mean, he would have buried his stepdad, if that's the proper term to call him, Joseph. He would have passed away. He would have saw other family members pass away. He saw his good friend Lazarus. He he knew what it was to have that kind of pain. You can go to him. He he knew what it was to go through temptation. You You can come to Jesus in your temptation. Maybe you've never even come to Jesus. But you see tonight that he came, took on a human body for the sole purpose of dying for the sins of the world. Your sin and my sin. If you've never come to Jesus, come to Jesus tonight and receive that salvation.